Presenting the backside of water. In honor of the Jungle Cruise, what's your favorite cinematic boat? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and you all think I'm going to say the Titanic, but I'm going to say the Carpathia, which rescued the survivors of the Titanic and is the boat where Kate Winslet turns her head so that Billy Zane doesn't catch her, and then she finds the diamond. Oh, shit. Uh, I'm Matt Patches. I'm going to go with Ghost Ship and steal David's answer. (laughs) Hey, it's me, David the Seven. And I feel like it needs to be the Orca from Jaws, not just because it's memorable, but because I don't like the ocean, and that ship feels cozy when I remember it for some reason. I don't like the ocean. You don't like it's waiting scary. in the ocean, splashing around with your No, feet? no. I'm mostly afraid of things like Bruce the Shark, which is things eating me in the ocean. Davis from a landlocked state. It all adds up. Now I understand yeah, your right. COVID fears. It's exactly like Jaws. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm David Ehrlich. That, which means it, it's a good idea. I'm still David Ehrlich, and I'm going to go with Titanic <laughs> because Katie chickened out. Because <laughs> I knew that you wouldn't think of a different one. They made a whole boat set. It you was weren't, great. You weren't ready for my deep cut. <laughs> I wasn't. What about the Lusitania? No love for the loose? Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 358. It's Pandemic 71. It's the week of Wednesday, July 28th. That's the day that a 1932 white zombie, the first zombie movie, was released. We're getting close to the 100th anniversary of zombie movies. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. This is a, this is a big horror in July episode for us. Yeah, seriously. Well, we'll, we'll get there. I came back from... Uh, I'm back from vacation and Dave made me watch a scary movie, but we'll get there. Uh, first of all, The True Terror... Will we be talking about Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes this week? Do we have any reviews? We have one review. It's a very short one. Just by eyeballing <laughs> it, I can read the whole thing. And uh, it's one of those reviews that makes me wish we didn't have any. Um, po- Bless this person. Uh, podcast reviewer 333-927-6579 says, Couple requests. More Katie. Fewer patronizing sighs from David. <sighs> Whoa. Please. Last episode and did not thanks. deliver on that. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, we're so glad you're back because we went the whole episode without remembering that you were gone, and then we were like, "Oh, we should mention." Excuse that Katie me. Was out. For, now you're back. For the record, for the people out there who are recording the lore of fighting in the war room, I frequent intervals during the Thanks recording asked, "Should we mention that Katie isn't here?" I feel like we miss Katie. I like. I thought you you made it sound like that you just forgot I wasn't there. And you're like she's being weirdly. And Patches said, episode. "People will figure it out." <laughs> so. It took us 20 minutes to start the, the audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I believe in them. Uh, well, thank you for leaving us a review. Uh, David, you've, you're on warning. Uh, and I, I'm back. You don't have to worry. I should be back for a while. I know I've been missing a lot of these lately. I'm here. I'm seeing stuff. You were at the, uh, at the beach, the old beach. Oh, yeah. That's what they call it when you go to the beach with uh, six small children. It just makes you older. Mm. <laughs> uh, that's what that movie Supernatural effect yeah, of parenting. I haven't seen old, but I think I lived it. Whoa. Dark. Yeah. Twist. All right, for our tidbit tonight, we're going to talk about uh, an increasing trend. not something new, throwing massive amounts of money at franchises and IP and making something out of nothing. Um, but David, you flagged one of my <laughs> tweets this week, um, and, and so maybe we'll open this can of worms. And There's a big conversation here, which so earlier this week it was announced, and the New York Times, I think, got the scoop here, that Universal Pictures was um, throwing $400 million some dollars, a mega deal, as they say in the non-trades, um, to buy an Exorcist trilogy from Blumhouse and David Gordon Green, and it was going to be on Peacock, but also going to hit theaters, maybe. And anyway, it cost $400 million to pay the people who need to make three Exorcist movies. And not only that, uh, there are going to be sequels. Ellen Burstyn 
is back, and uh, actually, who's gonna? Leslie Odom Jr. is gonna lead this trilogy. He's gonna have a daughter who needs an exorcism. He go, he hits up Ellen Burstyn for some reason, and something something. It's gonna have the exorcist the devil music. is not happy to see the her. The poster again. will look like the old Exorcist poster. I mean, they're spending a lot of money. What could go wrong with a sequel I- to The Exorcist, right, Matches? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, this is a proven franchise. Lots of great sequels. A great television spinoff that everyone remembers. Uh, Exorcist, <laughs> worth spending $400 million on. No, I, I mean, I saw this news and I, I just, I, I understand some of the logic, right? Damon Gordon Green, he reignited the Halloween franchise with the original players, brought it into the modern era. That was a big hit. They're making a second one and a third one with Blumhouse. So why not do the same thing for The Exorcist? But I guess what baffles me is that um, this is just the logic of everything now. You know, In the New York Times report for this, they cite how Netflix spent a similar amount of money on Knives Out sequels. One, that I seems like a totally... wild comparison to me, but... Yeah, well, I, I, I think you're right, Katie, which is like Knives Out. Actually, that movie made a lot of money, and people are excited for the star-studded sequels that will... Made a lot of money out. very recently. Very recently. Yeah, it's a bona fide hit of the modern era, and Ryan Johnson is he's a direct a star-studded director in itself. Like, there's a lot working for that franchise, and yet that still steam, seems staggering to me. Like, spending that much money on, I don't know what, just paying everyone's bills and getting it in-house and making sure Knives Out premieres on Netflix eventually. Sure, I mean, the amount of money the first movie made, it was a surprise hit, but like The Exorcist... Yes, it is a very popular movie. It is a, it's a name brand. But what I couldn't understand is this, and I think this is what David was flagging and we'll get into, which is I, I think about the horror genre. I think about James Wan, someone who he did Saul, did The Conjuring, did uh, what was that Insidious. other one? That, Insidious. That, they made three of those, he and I still can't remember the name of it. it doesn't... Kevin Bacon getting... Uh, yeah, Death, uh, Death Standing? <laughs> no, that's the, that's the video game. Um. Yeah, that didn't go over so well. He also made that puppet, but he made an evil Death puppet movie that didn't take. Um, Death, yeah, Death Sentence is the Kevin Bacon one. Oh, it's like uh, Kevin Bacon, something happens at a gas station, and his son <laughs> plays hockey. The point here is that James Wan seems to have proven that you can make low-budget movies that turn into massive franchises. You can make original IP, uh, to be totally crass and gross about it, but like that's what this business is. Can anyone stumble into, can anyone strike gold? And make their own IP. James Wan can. Like and he's Knives done Out. it in the horror genre. And <laughs> like Knives Out. So the question is, why would The Exorcist be worth something in this day and age? It, it, you could just mimic The Exorcist. Copycat The Exorcist. Do it in the modern times and not spend $400 million trying to buy the rights. Or I mean, Universal, I guess, has the rights. They're just spending massive, massive amounts of money for someone to take the reins on it. I, I just don't understand. And I, I would love to try and psychologically profile Universal and all the people involved who think making spending $400 million on an Exorcist trilogy reboot slash sequel makes sense in an era where James Wan can kind of like come up with anything, which he'll do later this year with this movie. He just needs, he just needs an adjective. It just needs to be like malignant or like scary, whatever the fuck. Yeah. Just give me a word. There's like a $20 million. It's like improv 101. Give me a subject. Uh, tacos at a, uh, an igloo. Okay, I got it. Um, yeah, no, I just so don't I, understand. I just, what is I, the logic I flagged, your, I flagged your tweet for the reasons you pointed out. I was just baffled. In the horror genre of all things, um, which is really the most durable genre in this theatrical landscape, um, because people still understand sort of viscerally that you can get a richer experience seeing these movies in a theater where the noises are loud and you're sitting in the dark and things jump out at you and you hear people screaming. Um, that this really feels like, you know, another vestige of like the great IP uh, gold rush that we're in right now where it's the bubble is going to burst soon if it hasn't started to leak already. And But we're still in this time when all these, you know, upstart streamers are spending ungodly amounts of money just to be able to, because what they're, I mean, yes, they could make maybe more of a profit if they just slapped a, an adjective on a movie and put it into theaters. Um, but they are trying to stake out space for themselves in the increasingly competitive streaming landscape. They need Peacock, which is already facing an uphill battle because it's called Peacock, to have a foothold against your Netflixes and Amazon Primes and Hulus and whatnot. Uh, and they need the name, The Exorcist, 
to sway people over to invest in in Peacock, when in reality, what is going to get people to uh, sign up for these streaming services, and I speak from experience, is going to watch Below Deck a week early and realizing what they don't tell you in all the commercials for that, saying you want to watch Below Deck a week early, you can go on Peacock, is that the latest season of, of a show like Below Deck is locked into their premium level. So you can't watch it for free like you can all the earlier seasons. You have to subscribe or sign up for a free uh, free trial subscription. Uh, that is that that like feeling of being at the supermarket checkout counter and making an impulse buy. Like I feel like that is what really compels people to sign up for uh, streaming platforms. Yes, there are the major spots of IP where if somebody wants to watch The Mandalorian, they're like, I suppose I'm going to sign up for Disney. But when it comes, when that trickles down, when you're not talking about your Marvels and your and your Star Warses and you're getting towards your Exorcists. I, I don't know if that's the best way to stake a claim for your streaming service, but what do I know? I don't well, have that's a, that's million the thing. Maybe it's a gut. I'm, I'm just wondering if it's a gut reaction of mine to be like, Ugh, how could this possibly be worth it? But maybe there's evidence that I'm not thinking of. Dave, maybe something comes to mind, or Katie, you have something that like, has yeah, this no, it's before? a. Does I have this a complete... play work? I mean, it doesn't matter if this play works or not. They stand to lose less money this way. So the reason I think it's interesting to pair this with Knives Out is the Netflix Knives Out deal makes sense because they pay everybody and they pay them to come back for a sequel before the movie's even released. So if Knives Out's a fucking hit, all that profits Netflix. Netflix's. I see. You're not going back and negotiating. Yeah, you're not going back. You're not negotiating Daniel Craig, uh, you know, to come back for like more money like I'm sure they had to do for this one. That's what they're doing with this Exorcist thing. Instead of taking a swing at it, like let's start a new movie series or let's start a new television series. It's a new business model where you front pay because there's no DVD model anymore. You don't know if there's going to be a theatrical release model. All you know for sure that's going to be able to funnel money back to you is your streaming service for sure at this point. So. You're being Start extremely sensible here, by the way. This is a this this is a smart <laughs> observation. This is why Dave's gonna be running. Th- Dave's the good one. Well, Dave's the good one on the podcast. I mean, it, it's it's uh, not just me. I've been reading uh, the big picture, the fight for the future of movies by Ben Fritz, which is essentially a book written after the Sony hack that uses Sony as an example for like this pivot out of like the old studio model into uh, IPs and then eventually streaming. Uh, but the idea being that, like, you can't, uh, it's it's le- it's less risky if they're going to have three movies that have a very low bar in order to just break even because they're getting, like, 80% of the profits than it is to say they're going to do a trilogy, hire an Ellen Bernstein with options, and then hire David Gordon Green with options. Options is bad. You don't want that. You want to pay them once. They do the job. They make the movies. It doesn't even matter if the movie's good or not because you're using it to fill like a content farm. Like The Exorcist makes perfect sense to me in terms of a strategy of how to do it. And happenstance, when we later talk about Fear Street, Fear say. Street was also going to be a trilogy of movies. It uh, is a trilogy of got... movies. Well, I mean, is a trilogy it, of theatrically it, released yes, movies. It is. It is. It is. It but is. instead, it got you know shunted over to Netflix. It's actually what reduced... this project sounds the most like. I mean, yes. The Exorcist. Yeah, like, let's that. just pump out three movies with David Gore Green probably although I imagine shoot, giant shoot I, I imagine that the Exorcist uh, sequels are not going to feel quite so much like a miniseries of television but but in terms of hype and how they get people to you know sign up for services or whatnot we've already been not we like the four of us but in terms of what people consider like the block the blockbuster movie audience the people they want to go back into theaters awesome. we've been trained to see F9 knowing they're going to make another fast movie. We've been trained to see the newest Marvel movie, knowing what the next four titles are. Like, that's the way that they're sort of, like, building hype and buzz at this point. I don't know if they care what the fucking story's about. Like, they paid this amount of money for an exorcist with Ellen Burstyn and for three of them by David Gordon Green. And everyone knows that Ellen Burstyn brings in major audience. She's a major Oh, yeah. Pieces of a woman made, like, $100 (laughs) And at 88 years old, she's more of a box office draw than ever. I'm not subscribed to Peacock, but I got to get a piece of that ass. You know what I'm saying? I hope Ellen she's Burst richer than she's ever been in her life after this deal. I, want I would Burst imagine that, that out she must this. be. It'll be, it'll be fun to see uh, in a couple of years if this stops 
or if it morphs into something else, because this is also going to be a model where I don't know if we're ever going to publicly know if this was a success or not. Yeah. There's no benefit of them telling us. If well, it we'll know a little out. bit because these movies will go to theaters first and then go to streaming yes. later. So, and I mean, they will have a box office draw, but it, it was interesting about the deal is that Universal teamed up with Peacock to make this deal. Peacock is owned by Universal, but they're still teaming up. Like the theatrical teams are going in on Exorcist trilogy with Peacock. I find that kind of like necessary synergy to be fascinating. Um, it reminds I mean, me how of when much I worked at Esquire is... and the Hearst offices had to rent out our offices from Hearst. That was weird. Uh, sure, but how much of that is messaging to stockholders about you know stockholders who are all about? future-proofing their investment and only want to see news about streaming and hearing yeah. about the success of Peacock. Sure, like, how much of that is signaling to them that they... Maybe, but, like, did the, any of these people realize that they made an Exorcist show that no one watched? I just don't understand the Exorcist. They did not, I assure you. Ultimate play. Um, I guess they remember the movie, and that's all that matters. They I think it's saying, like, Peacock has launched without a lot of, like, new things that anybody's watching. So, like, go bet on something that, like, is pre-existing content. Like, all the right. stuff that Dave was just saying. But, yeah, it's all... Focus on streaming and Peacock is floundering, floundering right now. Floundering, um, floundering. If you if you read that that New York Times uh, article, there is like a whole section of it that talks about the people who like put together the deal and how like these are the deals they're putting together now. So this might just also just be a shift in what uh, you know a, a reaction to the shitty rebellion against packaging we almost got to go through before the pandemic hit and upended the whole industry. Yeah, I mean, Peacock, Universal, they don't have, they can't do the Disney investor call. They can't be like, we're making a Lightyear, Buzz Lightyear movie based on the life of Buzz Lightyear. Um, although, can't they? That. Like, Universal, I, there's just so much IP out there. I'll never understand what resonates with an audience. and so what much doesn't. IP out there. There's IP, so IP freely, if you will. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I just, I, I, this will always baffle me. I don't understand the business every time I think I do, and um, I look forward to watching an Exorcist trilogy. I was looking forward to David Gordon Green finishing the George Washington trilogy first, but I guess we'll get the the Exorcist. This is among the weirder trajectories for a like Sundance indie filmmaker I mean, person. That's been true for that's been true for a very long time. Yeah, no, David Gordon only, Green's been on his own. We said that path. during your it's highness. It's only getting weirder. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, only we'll getting weirder. But good for him. Let the man have good a pool. Good North Carolina boy. It's good to see him succeed. So we're doing a mini segment about old, a little thumbs up, thumbs down action. Old, it's about that beach you've heard about on the internet. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan's new movie about a beach that makes you old. Technically, it's the rocks around the beach for some reason, even though that just needlessly complicates the lore and doesn't really pay off. But neither here nor there. Why couldn't it have just been the sand? Um, I mean, <laughs> I guess that's it's kind of baked into the premise. It's not like it's been the rocks the whole time. Uh, it's, you know, it really doesn't matter. Uh, but yeah, some people, some Vicky Creepses, some uh, Gael Garcia Bernal's, some uh, Ken Lungs, some uh, what's that? I said Ken Lung, fresh off. Oh, I love. I really love him. Uh, he also I recently say wrote Fresh Off Lost. Lost has been no fresh off. Sorry, fresh off AI in that one scene of AI. <laughs> fresh off of HBO's <laughs> industry, and also oh, wow. from on a serious note, writing a really touching essay about his brother's death in. Uh, Somewhere I can't remember where it was. I read it on the internet, wow, but took um, a turn. yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, I've lo- long been a fan of Ken Lung and always happy to see him get work, even if that work is reading stilted and night, Sh- night Shyamalan dialogue. And uh, the yeah, so old. They go to the beach. They get old. Uh, kids become adults. Adults become grandparents. Grandparents become dust. It's a story as old as time. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I. Just to set up the discourse before I pass the baton here, M. Night Shyamalan has sort of become emblematic, I think, in some circles of uh, creative freedom, a, a willingness, uh, an artistic signature that is lacking from so much uh, mainstream filmmaking, uh, in large part because he self-finances his old movies and reaps the benefits. 
And uh, I'm totally on board with that. I think um, even though in his self-financing phase, I found his filmmaking to be less and less interesting. This is something that started in recent years with his smaller movies. And obviously he was able to parlay split into a real career renaissance, at least at the box office. Um, but the, uh, yeah, I mean, I- I'm all, I'm all for that. I-, I love that he is off on his own little adventure and doing something that is just completely on a different wavelength than everyone else. And he's able to make movies that there are sequences in old, uh, which for all of his PG 13 ness is still you know, disturbing on a body horror sense. And at least, um, even if it completely, <laughs> it completely just sort of forgets about the sort of emotional baggage of watching your children age 40 years in the span of a few hours and just saves that for the tail end um, and focuses instead on tumors growing to 30 times their size um, and uh, more horrific things. But there are scenes in this movie that that really sort of push the envelope for what I thought you could do uh, at a studio level um, just conceptually. And my hat's off to the sick and twisted mind of M. Night Shyamalan for that. But I mean, yes, there is, there is a bit of a, its own charm to, the woodenness of his dialogue to, you know, how on not uh, Rod Serling, you know, rolling in his grave to be compared to, to this in terms of the, uh, <laughs> the subtlety of it all. I mean, certainly Rod Serling is an obvious influence here, but not even like the worst Twilight Zone episode. Um, you know, the ones is, is that Jordan Serling Peele wrote in running circles around M night. I feel like, yeah, I mean like the M. first Knight scene of this movie is like, here. is like, you know, you only think that cause you're young and like, you know, you'll appreciate that one day. It's like every fucking line of dialogue you're sitting out of the head. It's part of the fun. I suppose. If you were only but, old, you would know. Yeah, <laughs> exa- more or less, but it really does. Um, at least for me, apparently not for everyone, uh, that along with, I think a, a diminishing returns in terms of what Ed Knight is doing behind the camera, make it very hard to emotionally engage with the story. This is a movie that I was very excited about because it's premise send a chill up my spine as a new parent. I mean, there are really no nightmares like missing out on your child's life and, uh, and also getting old at the same time, which uh, can happen. And um, <laughs> the, uh, and I was just really disappointed to, to just be put through a sort of you know, milk toast body horror carnival um, that only had a few high points. And then so you didn't like to it. really not grapple with any of the sort of emotional distress that would come with this and then have a really tacked on coda. Anyway, what did you guys think? You're all, you're, you got well, the three of the two of you who've seen this movie are also parents, but this movie doesn't really play to parents as strongly as I thought I w- it would. So we could definitely broaden the conversation. Beyond <laughs> Wait, that. I haven't seen old, but I want to chime in that oh. one division did the same thing where there's that one episode where yeah. the kids like age themselves up from five to 10. And I was so horrified by the entire concept of that. And they were like, and now they're 10. I'm like, okay. Easier for a TV show, completely <laughs> horrifying for a parent to contemplate. That's all. Tell me about old. Yeah. So the twi- yeah. The twist here is that I don't think any of us have seen old. Dave, did oh. you see old? <laughs> I did not see old. Oh, no. Well, that's, uh, I we, guess we were that's... A- specifically asking you about old. Oh, this is a rare instance where I was monologuing for good reason. Yes, um, exactly. Wow, that almost never happens. Twist! Plus episodes M. Night Shyamalan, that, twist! That is a twist worthy of M. Night Shyamalan. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I really... As Katie was was latching onto there, I mean, this is a real like a fear for for parents. And when maybe it's not something you would think about away from pop culture and where it makes these sort of concepts possible. When you do see that fear played upon, uh, it really triggers something. Um, and so I just I thought that you know M Night is a family man is a number of I was kids. Say, Some what's of surprising them... about this movie is that his daughter shot the second unit. His daughter is like twenty two or twenty three years old. She's straight and out of NYU. She that's directed cool. an episode of Servant. And uh-huh. she and, is like uh, his clone or something. He, she's yeah. like straight into the business and shooting his second unit on the movie. It's amazing. <laughs> it's a See, little cool. That's like a parent fantasy you know? that your kid goes to work with you and pursues awesome. your dream. So that's sure. why he wasn't and, and he was too blinded an, by his joy spending time with his daughter to come. I'm not sure heart. if it's the same daughter or another one of his daughters, but one of his daughters sings an original song that factors into the text of the movie itself and then plays in full over the end credits. So it's really a family affair here. Uh, but I just although really, as someone told, um, recently told me they are to blame for the last Airbender movie because they loved the show and told their dad to make that so they really have a lot. Great. To, well, like, they also brought their dad. They brought their dad the graphic novel that old is based on. So they have a lot of blood on their hands, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but they, uh, you know, I, I just I this this. First of all, I thought, you know, a movie like this should have been told in real time and really just allowed you to sort of sit with the, the existential horror of what was happening. I've, re- I've read rave reviews of this movie that are latching on to um, ideas that are definitely present, but are 
drafting off them a certain emotional intensity that just was not available to me. Um, I'm happy for those people, but like, I just, I just found this to be really cheap schlock. And that really made me wow. pine for the days when M Knight took his time. I mean, I was watching Signs of the Weekend for the umpteenth time, and I'm thinking back to uh, the uh, Sixth Sense and Unbreakable and The Village, which may end up being my favorite of his movies when all said and done. I mean, there was a real what is this hate- village? Re- uh, yeah, the, the village, so much uh, the village, village is happening. I did but, not care for the village at the time. Yeah, no, check it out again. I guess we got to do a village. It's vivid. Village. It's like a. It's beautiful, and the score is amazing. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, we gotta be getting close to the 10 year anniversary or the 20 year anniversary of the village oh boy I, I don't want to know I, mean, I feel so old but there's there is a there was I mean and sure he's free to mix up his style and the, the style that he came up in you see this a lot of filmmakers as they sort of pivot into a new way of shooting things but I this movie in particular more than The Visit or um what was the most recent? Oh, or like, you know, I, I didn't really like anything about glass. Uh, glass, but more than those movies made me miss the more slow burn, um, really sink into it. Let the implications of these situations wash over you. M. Night Shyamalan, um, which I thought was a much better fit for the woodenness of his, you know, over the top approach. Um, and this kind of schlock, I don't think really, really suits him, at least not the way that he does it here. You were going to ask a question. Twist, before David? Uh, well, well I skip ahead a, a minute if you haven't. Well, seen you don't need you don't to because because you know the idea There's of Emma Shyamalan being this purveyor of twists has always been a little overplayed. But uh, there is a twist. I suppose I don't think there's a twist so much as an explanation. I mean, there isn't. You, there there is no sort of twist that you know profoundly changes what the premise of the movie is. There is simply uh-huh. a out of left field explanation for why this is happening, um, or why, not why even why, happening? but but to what ends. Oh, uh, okay. Um, the alien rocks are sent to wipe us out to save the planet so that the planet could live on. See, Whoa. see, you are you are already getting a little too far into causation. So if I can spoil this here, the uh the twist, so to speak, is that they so M. Night Shyamalan as his in as a cameo, um, always playing, you know, the person who's responsible for his character's miseries, uh, drives these families to this beach. And then he is seen watching them from afar over the course of the movie um, with like surveillance equipment. They can't escape. And it is revealed at the end that he works for a company that has harnessed the uh, natural powers of the speech, which are caused by you know, no explanation needed. And they are doing pharmaceutical trials because they're able to test drugs and see the results of them over many decades in the span of just a day or two. Uh, and so they're doing this for the good of mankind. Um, and the, the logic is, you know, we've cured so many diseases because of the speech. It's worth the cost of a few lives. My answer to which is, uh, one, you could really easily get volunteers for something like this if you found a beach with these sort of atemporal properties. And two, did you have to kill their children as well? It turns out, actually, as a subnote, that all of the people on this beach are sick. That's, uh, they all have different sort of sicknesses. One is as a mental illness, another is uh, grand mal seizures, another as a tumor, and uh, they have taken these medications, and they've seen that this woman hasn't had a seizure in the equivalent of 14 years, even though it's only been like seven hours on the beach, um, or whatever the case might be. So um, I, it just feels like the kind of thing that the global medical community could probably get together and um, devise more ethical ways of testing, but eventually, as an old man, Alex Wolf and his sister escape through the coral and bust bust the people doing this and they're shut down and sent to jail uh and <laughs> ah, i don't uh, it does that and really make three months later the know. coronavirus breaks out and everyone's <laughs> exactly. like we, you wish we had the beach you motherfuckers <laughs> i mean there is there is a part of me that's like well maybe this is how we were able to get the vaccine so fast i mean it's yeah, it, i think that ideal that explanation would what? go further with anti-vaxxers than uh logic um, if people but... don't get vaccinated because they saw old. I'm going to be furious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, the... yeah. That's that's old. Uh, you know, M Night, M Night, and M Night. I just wish he M Nighted a little bit more like he used to. Too old. <laughs> old. Old. He loves old. <laughs> he loves old.
tried to get people to watch three whole movies but let me tell you why the fear street trilogy on netflix is uh a a guess three movies technically released like tv they were released on three fridays in july each movie takes place in a different time period but tells one story and they're all uh directed by uh lee janik janiak Janiac? I say Janiac, Janiac but... is what I thought. Yeah. All right, we're going to go with Janiac cuz uh, assuming it's said like it's spelled. Um uh, and this is uh Fear Street was a RL Stein uh teen uh horror series like the teen version of Goosebumps, I guess would be a way to think about it. Um and it was supposed to become a movie way back in 1997 when the rights were originally first uh sold, but it has been bouncing around people thought they were going to make it like a scream ripoff uh that went away people thought maybe just like a single movie for fox uh as the uh development bounced around it ended up in 2017 at uh, a place called uh churnin entertainment underneath fox um that uh we it would it went from one movie written by a man named kyle killian to Janiac signed on board, expanded into a trilogy of movies that she would shoot back to back. And the initial plan was to release them one month after another. Uh, after uh, Chernin Entertainment ended its deal with uh, Fox, because Fox got absorbed by Disney, they got a new distribution deal. It was a first look deal with Netflix, and Netflix inherited these theatrical, maybe theatrical releases, and they became this uh, Netflix event. That's the background story. The they were, that's story. before they they before they were shot, right? Uh, that was before, or because uh... they were they they. I mean, something we're going to talk about is that they seem explicitly constructed for the system for which they were distributed. Distributed, yeah. Like but they, they were. I mean, I think they were constructed to be released a month apart, as they were supposed to be at Fox. Correct. So sure, they, a month they, a week. Who cares? But I'm saying, like, they, they, yeah. there are elements of these movies that yes. do not translate to the theatrical experience as we know it, so much as they do to the streaming they, television landscape. They, well, they, they were supposed they, to be theat- theatrically released a month apart. They, they wrapped principal photography before Netflix signed the deal with Chernin. Interesting. Huh. Okay. Uh, so these three movies became three, like, entry three movies. There's still three movies. Still three feature length movies. Uh, but played, I think, a bit more like television because you got like the television buzz week to week as people who are going to tune back in maybe and see the conclusion of Fear Street. Uh, the three movies are Fear Street Part 1, 1994, Fear Street Part 2, 1978, and Fear Street Part 3, 1666. It features a lot of the same cast. Um, it recasts as different roles in 1666, but basically two different casts in 1994 and 1978. Uh, but all one giant story about a witch named Sarah Fear, not spelled like the title, but still Sarah Fear, uh, who has haunted uh, two towns, uh, Sunnyside and, oh no, Shadyside and Sunnyvale um, for, since 1666 when she was hung. And ever since then, it seems like every few years, a bunch of the Shadyside residents uh, will rise up and go crazy and go on a murdering spree, supposedly because of the curse of this witch. They're sort of like a um, very heavy-handed uh, two sides of uh, Dylan football and Friday Night Lights uh, metaphor <laughs> going on here sure. with these two towns. Uh, but otherwise, is uh, follows the stories of teenagers um, in all three time periods to sort of tell this overarching story i want to go to katie first katie how many fear streets did you watch i watched one fear street i read a lot of fear street books as a kid do i get any any points for that and it's weird because i'm so not a horror person now but i read goosebumps and then kind of graduated to fear street and like i think i can handle scary books better than scary movies for some reason um i don't like scary books (laughs) i did back then Um, I don't remember the vibe of Fear Street super well to compare it. I feel like the movie does a pretty decent job of capturing what I remember about it, where it's like, 
you know, relatively like kid adventure but, you know, with some actual gore attached to it. Um, it felt more like Scream to me a while that it felt more like Stranger Things, but maybe that's maybe those both started from Fear Street. Uh, but I did only watch the 1994 one, which is set very deeply in the period in which I was reading all of the Fear Street. So it all, it all, but I, I definitely bought a bunch of Fear Streets at a B. Dalton, which uh, factors into the opening <laughs> sequence of. The what first is a one. B. Dalton? It was the bookstore we had. What, what, what was your mall is bookstore? That a, is that like a giant mall bookstore type thing? Barnes and Nobles? Wait, what did you have before Barnes and Noble? Were there any other clues that this movie... David, we're talking about bookstores. We're not talking about Walden books. You can shut the hell up. We had Walden books. We did not have Walden books. B. Dalton was smaller than Borders or Books a Million or anything. Thank you for clarifying Yes, important to know. The size of the one in the movie is very much the size of the one that I remember. Katie, I ask again. Were there any other clues that this movie was set in 1994? Uh... I, like a song I believe, or two that maybe uh, yeah, I feel like I heard one song thing. that I remembered from the period. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what was the other recent movie. That, uh, Cruella was the one where I was complaining Cruella. about the needle drops, right? How does this one stack up to Cruella? Which the is needle drops in this movie make it's Cruella in- look like. I mean, I don't really know how that. I think there's a shot where the bu- the bus like drives from point A to point B, and there's maybe three songs. <laughs> the <laughs> I, I just pulled up my review because I made a note of this in it. Uh, only a Happy When It Rains by Garbage, but also songs by Radiohead, Portishead, and the Bush song Machine Head are all played within the fif- first 15 minutes of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> they just look at the head section of their iTunes library, like, do it all. Go hey, for it. Give it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, the, no, the needle drops in uh, part one are a lot. The needle drops in part two are present, and I think kind the of The needle drops in uh, part three, 1666, are off the <laughs> Yeah, those, those, oh, yeah. those loot songs. Here comes the strings. I mean, <laughs> as a magical fan, I was losing my shit. <laughs> well, uh, I think I'm, 1666. Just, uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. No, I, 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 before we get into the individual movies, I just wanted to say that Lee Janiak is a really interesting filmmaker to me. Mostly, Patches, I don't know if you were there for me. Or there for me. I don't I know if you were there for, you for every me. Every time you need anything. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. It's true in my heart. I don't know if you were there with me uh, at South by Southwest South by? when we saw, uh, or at least I saw, uh, Lee Janiak's movie Honeymoon at a midnight screening, yeah. um, which was a real I love Honeymoon. Delight. Yeah. I had a really great time with that and I've been excited for her follow-up for a long time to come. And she's definitely playing into her strengths here. Uh, but I think, you know, sort of what we're dancing around in the 1994 segment is that it has this, this YA, it's really trying to thread the needle between Scream and younger skewing YA. It really wants to hit that sweet spot of a slumber party movie, I think, where there's a feeling for like 11 and 12 year old girls watching this, that it's just something that's slightly dangerous. That's like maybe something. Slightly dangerous. It's pretty damn gory. gory. I mean, but it's, it's not, it's gory in like a safe way. I think it gives you that feeling that. You're watching something you shouldn't be if you're, you know, hypothetically in that age. But it's also if a parent knew you were watching this, they wouldn't be horrified. It's it it's moves like, pretty quickly into the like teen adventure Goonies vibe, even with all the gore yeah. around it. No, that's true. I but mean, I mean and, the, the, yeah. the kills are pretty horrific. I mean, someone yes. gets their brains mashed in, and it looks like uh, hamburger meat. It's <laughs> bad. Yeah, and a character who fantastic. you like, uh, like that happens to someone who you like. I was kind of stunned by them doing that. It's yeah, like this movie a, will kill like people Rose McGowan who are good in the um in the car uh, in the garage door thing. Cars one. Uh, yeah, no, no. <laughs> Rose McGowan in famous death scene in Cars one. Yeah, the- <laughs> Light McQueen <laughs> chow. He died. <laughs> but I think what you know what what Janiac is doing, and it didn't you know always work for me, but I was really able to appreciate it in the abstract and how it would work for a section of the Netflix audience. You know, people who do not need to pretend they're seeing one movie to sneak into another, um, or you know, a fake ID or whatever to get into a certain movie is it really does split the difference between, you know, movies that skew young and movies that skew too old for that audience. And it's able to hold firm to that tone throughout all three movies. And I think get progressively darker um, and better. But uh, even though I think the second one is kind of the, the, the scraggliest. Let's get there in a second. But Katie, I want to, I want to hear about you watching 1994 because I know you don't like horror movies, but I do feel like to David's point, this is kind of like for young women more than, then are you calling me young that's so nice you're a young woman what are you, are oh, you wow. when, when you're with your girl pals and when i'm at a slumber party 
popping some popcorn. Are you? This is the movie you enjoy. Yeah, watching, I can or? definitely see this something that I would have stomached as a at a slumber party as a teenager in 1994, maybe a little bit later. <laughs> I, I got into it after a while. I got like a little kind of tired with it. Like once it's set up, it's like, well, it's a bunch of zombie. Oh, sorry, I'm just whatever. Good, um, go ahead. Was the premise of the, it was Zombies kind of like established and you kind of get where it's headed. I was like, all right, like I can see the rhythms of this and like, you know, it, it feel it's following beats in a way that I got a little tired of, but I think the gore um kind of softened up as it went on, as it kind of got into like the vibe among them. Like, you know, it's got these two girls as the lead and there's a romance between them and there's like a sweetness to that. Um, and it's like all the like weird characters as part of the group. So, so yeah, earnest. I think. I think uh, I my teenage self was certainly the target audience for this, and I I thought it was fine. I would have rather been watching Scream. Um, I <laughs> well, thought me, I, am I the... the one who thought about Stranger Things a lot, like the whole like oh, kid sure. gang. Like I mean, obviously it being on Netflix, oh, yeah. it seems like it seems like if you're a kid who watched Stranger Things when you were ten, now you're fifteen, and well, you're like, okay, oh, I'm shit. ready for this. Speaking of the old beach, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, that's possible. You know what's interesting? I mean, I don't know how much this matters, and I think Lee Janiak is is. A, a great filmmaker, emerging voice. I, I lo- again loved her honeymoon, uh, the honeymoon movie, and was really excited to see what's next. She is married to Matt Duffer, which I find interesting. Who created Stranger Things? Oh, I did not know that. Little, oh. if some, like, I don't know if there's some in their cahoots or something, but uh, there's definitely Stranger Things vibes here in a positive way. What's good about Stranger Things comes. Uh, but should we talk about the sort of dynamic between Sunnydale and Shadyville or Shady Side or whatever the fuck they're we called? We should because like it's they're... kind of a baffling choice to make a bunch of white people screaming about like I don't know economic differences. I I feel like there's a a racial divide here that doesn't actually manifest in the movie itself. Well, Am the the villain the villain over the trilogy is essentially like you know white hegemony in America yeah. and like. That's that is it is sort of represented around a clean line that it's like not everybody who lives in Shadyville, Shady Side, Shady Side, not everybody who lives in Shady Side <laughs> is a person of color. Um, but there, I mean, there are white male characters on that side of the fence. But uh, there is, you know, the way that the the sort of like white cleft jawed, you know, been in America for centuries, as we learn in in detail, um, you know caricature epitomizes sunnyville uh is is not easily overlooked and that's so it's sort of about the persecution of uh queer people and people of color and really anyone who's been marginalized in the united states for the past 300 years um and that is sort of the reoccurring theme over the course of the movies the movies and i i thought that overall the trilogy was much more effective as a trilogy or even and this is a spoiler just for like five seconds as a quadrilogy secret Ooh. quadrilogy <laughs> um, but uh which i thought was really playful and a fun twist what? but uh the um the I, I thought the individual movies were lacking so much so there was a big relief when the third one ended much earlier than expected even though i thought it was kind of the strongest and most adult of the three so far um but i i, I thought yeah overall it, the weird it's a slippery slope, but I, it's it's a really I'm really surprised to hear about the production history about when it was sold to Netflix and everything because it feels very much to me like it was made ex- explicitly for Netflix because these are technically individual movies I suppose in so much as anything is technically a movie are. that is streaming but they feel to me much much more like the episodes of a miniseries because of how they balance and sometimes don't the relationship between the serialized story, you know, the overarching story that's binding them all together and the discrete stories that are happening in the individual chapters. I mean, they really, the emphasis on a much greater degree, even like the Marvel movies feels together? like it's, it's about setting up the next one. So. Mm, I don't, I think that's a, that's a feature, not a bug. Like, I think they, exa- they knew exactly what they were doing. And even if these were theatrical releases, it would have felt like that. It just probably would have been more annoying because you would have been buying in for the ride each time. Like, I don't know. I probably wouldn't have watched part three the day it came out if it was in theaters. I would have been like, and when that gets to somewhere that's streaming, I'll see how Fear Street ended up. I think these movies would have gotten murdered in theaters. I really do. I think there is something, well, critics, zombies, Sarah Fear, yeah. (laughs) I I mean, I think uh, there is a chintziness to them that, that, that sort of like, 
winking at, at the past, particularly in the 1994 segment. Um, but is, it, is the, it any worse than like, I know what you did last summer? Or like, because we it's went hard through for this. Me to, it's hard for me to say accurately just because I, you know, those movies were one I mean, shot. it's not even that. It's, it's <laughs> more like a, it's, it's like a William Castle thing. I mean, it, it's, it, it would get murdered by critics, but it would be murdered by critics for the wrong reasons because it's like, it's it's a gimmick. No, I, it is. I think they would is, be more. Yeah. Well, it could be a theatrical endeavor, but like William Castle, we're saying the same thing. Like everyone's getting tingled in the seats. That's the. I, that's the. I think we're go. saying like, the same thing, which is essentially. Yeah. But I do think it would be murdered for the right reasons. It's because it's not giving you a full meal with each movie. Each movie does not feel complete unto itself. They really feel like uh, not that just they're just teeing up. Like I need to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative kind of way, but like they they really feel like. It's just getting the ball because rolling for the second movie, and it's all intertwined, and and they're really in the way that an episode. The first movie does not. And, I disagree with you because the first movie is pretty fulfilling. Like the first yeah, movie is a I big slasher with movie with a twist ending that sets up a sequel, and you might know it's coming. But I don't think it's unfulfilling. Like it's not left open ended. I will. I'll give you that. Rewatching the first movie after seeing the whole thing was rewarding. The first movie and, just has a post credit scene that's part of the movie, essentially. Right, but the first movie also, you know, there's a lot of things that are happening, not overwhelmingly subtly, but like that are happening in the background that don't click into place until you've seen all three. And so it was rewarding to revisit it, but it did feel to me like something that uh, would would have felt like a very light snack had I seen it in theaters. And I think that this is the rare Netflix movie that not only found the absolute right home, but feels like it was engineered for Netflix to me, even if that's, I'm sort of retconning it's the way that I don't. I don't think I disagree with anything you said. I think my stance is more like, if you're, if there's going to be stupid horror movies for teenagers, this seems really good. You know, mm. nobody's running around uh, necessarily punishing sex unless it's doing a parody of the 1978s. You know, nobody's calling each other fags. Nobody's trying to feel up somebody at a party. Like, this is this is what teenage horror should be. It's fine for I, me. I Most agree with that. Uh, I I I totally enjoyed sort of you know its ethos. Um, I just you know like the the second movie when they're all running around underground forever. It just it really sort of yeah. What do we the think of the second? Thing, we haven't talked much about the second. The only movie. thing holding my interest was the greater yeah the greater trilogy. So in the second movie, Katie, they're at a camp uh, and there's going to be a massacre and everybody it's like wet hot American summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, they stumble across the information about the witch's hand from part one a little earlier, and so it becomes a little bit more of an exploration of maybe where this witch's remains are, and they discover underground, uh, Stranger Things season two-esque underground magic tunnels with gross things inside. There Ah. is a really fun frailty-like twist to suggest to, to refer back to the Bill Paxson movie that I know everyone knows by heart. Um, a frailty-like <laughs> twist at the end of uh, at the end of part two, which I was found satisfying. But I like part, part two. Is, I like part, part two part because it's specifically the... either a parody or just like that crazy batshit stuff underneath the ground. It's like 91, 94 feels like it starts being Scream and then it realizes it needs to set up two more movies. And 1666, as we alluded to, is bifurcated by design. So I, I like 1976 as like a, a pastiche. I like it as a vibe. Yeah, no, I, I think it's actually pastiche that totally works. And I saw a lot of people kind of dragging the second movie, and I had a lot of fun with it. And they, it's heightened almost like Wet Hot. <laughs> mm-hmm. I joked earlier, but like it really is that silly. Um, and then it just goes for broke in the horror direction. I, I, I was happy to have watched these spaced out, not like uh, the critics might have and just like watch them as a binge or something. Mm-hmm. Um, gave this one the, the room it needed, I think, to like, I'm coming back to this series, not a month apart, like it was originally conceived. But um, I, I don't know. I got into the second one just from, it's, it's still character first. I think that's what's astonishing too. It's not gratuitous. It's still about like people and all of these movies are. And I think that's what, they're kind of mini triumphs, even though, yeah, there's the interconnectedness. You need to watch all three to all get it, I guess. But every time I cared about the characters in a new way, I will say, I, I guess 1666 is the one that I've seen some people go to bat for a bit more that I was just kind of like, this is just a school play. This is just 
like it's the doing the crucible. But, yeah, yeah. It really is. Do you feel like they could enjoyable. have? Do you feel like they could have done what that movie or movies do in with a theatrical release? Like that feels like something that would have been too bold a gambit. I think we could say it now because yeah, otherwise no, I Katie's know. gonna I be... know. So halfway through part three, sixteen sixty six, we get to what feels like an ending, and it goes Fear Street, nineteen ninety four, part two, and we're back in nineteen ninety four. We get the sequel. <laughs> well, because yeah, they have to like resolve what happens in nineteen ninety four, right? Well, I mean, they do do a really good job of going backwards in time, but the audience gets to go forward in the narrative. That I think is executed pretty well. But yes, they do have to come back for a fight in the mall conclusion to wrap everything up. Oh, I actually thought the, the twist of it all, or like the, it's not a twist. It's just what happens. It's the conclusion. Yeah, they the figure conclusion. out why this is all happening. And it's the cop guy from 1994 is the bad guy. Oh, and... the shitty boyfriend from succession who like looks shady as hell yes. as a, as a cop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He yeah, has, he, he has bad guy written all over. He's him. the lineage of the, ba- the first I mean, bad guy. His name is, uh, Chief of Police Good. In a, <laughs> that's yes. how you know he's bad. <laughs> yeah, that's how you know he's bad. Um, and and I, I found that really fulfilling. It's connecting the dots. I mean, David, to your point, is this a fulfilling movie theatrically? I think it would be if you watch the first two parts. I don't know. It's it's a fun movie. I, 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 I can't really put myself in the place of if I was a teenager. When I was a teenager, I'd just go to the fucking movies all the time. I just needed things to do. And yeah. this would be satisfying for that if it's like is this the movie that i would go out now as a 30 something and pay a babysitter and like spend my entire life committing to getting to this movie in the theater no if this is a movie you I'd, didn't even i see a movie every the week city to see snake eyes yeah <laughs> you wouldn't even not. do it for snake eyes definitely not i also like most of the movie called snake eyes yeah uh, Katie doesn't don't even worry know what snake don't eyes worry is. about it they tried to relaunch G.I. Joe. It didn't work. That was Snake Eyes. I go on vacation for a week. <laughs> you Joe miss a movie. whole Joe movie. Channing Tatum's not even in it this time. Katie, yeah, sorry. okay. All right. I, I like the cast for the most part. Uh, they're very serviceable. Yeah, wait. Not we should good. talk about this kid. Um, the guy who was in uh, The Woman in the Window. The guy who's in White Lotus. Who is this guy? Oh, you know is he the, the, the shitty yeah, teenage good. woman in the Fred window? Fred Heisinger. He's everywhere. This kid is a star. Oh, yeah. He's like the, next Tom he Hanks. Very, I'm saying about that everyone. He has very that. similar energy to, uh, what's the name of the kid who was in Shithouse? Um, oh. oh wow. The kid who made Shithouse, you mean? No. No, no, no. Oh. Uh, Wait, is he the kid who's like the goofy friend in, uh, yeah, yeah. in part one? Yes. Or no, David, he's the, no. He's yeah, the yeah. drug at the druggy guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guy. He was the guy in the car Logan from 8th grade. He has the Logan. same energy as Logan Miller. Oh. Fred uh, Heshinger, this, is that his name? Yeah, yes, yeah. This kid's, this kid's going places. This kid's like dopey, funny guy. But He he's, plays uh, Steve yeah, Zahn's he's... son on The White Lotus. He's and so good. They really, We're going to talk really about The White Lotus work. on this podcast. I'm saying it now to make sure that it Yeah, works, I've, but... I've caught up with it. I'm loving it. Oh, my God. It. He's yeah. in Let Them All Talk somehow, and also News of the World, and also Underground Railroad. This kid, he's, he's well-connected. He's... He is going to be everywhere. He already is. And uh, he's good in this movie, too. I mean, he he plays the stoner, druggy guy who gets yeah, surprisingly no, he's, murdered. He, he's, he is good. He's very uh, likable in the kind of silly I don't role. know anyone in this movie. Who is the main woman? Kiana Madaria. I don't I don't really know her. From she's her. excellent. I I yeah, she, yeah, she's, she's uh, really good. She manages to actually carry the a lot of parts where it feels like it shouldn't be working at all. Well, yeah, yeah, the part but- where she breaks up with her girlfriend because she moved to a new town because her parents got divorced. It's like, dude, not I actually not thought that fair. that is a great scene. That is a great scene because it just it captures the weight of like tiny things that happen in teens lives. Like this is not a significant moment in your life, but it feels like everything. And she's like, I'm committed to saving your life. Later in the movie, I just, I just thought, yeah, no, that's the, a good like- arc from like, how why did you move to another town and abandon me with your parents to well, now I have to kill you to save you, and I'm absolutely going to hold your absolutely. head underwater. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love how grand the teen arcs feel here, even though they feel insignificant. I mean, try, uh, people trying to murder you is pretty significant. But, uh, and, then, and then she has the impossible task of, in 1666 of being like a young 
lesbian woman in the year 1666. Wait, so they, the cast back. plays dual roles in the 1666 they, part? They do. Oh. You see them like flash into the bodies of the people who are really there. Um, and everyone is doing the kind of like new American accents, and it's it's not it's not shaky. over yeah not over the board successful. Oh, so no. the kids of 1994 like Astral Project back into everyone the past? and the people from uh, the middle segment too. I think are are there. So at the like end of the middle segment, at the end of the middle segment, the main person touches the bones and gets sucked into 1666, and 1666 starts off, and our main girl. Is not actually Sarah Fear, but we see her as the main girl. I guess that's how oh. they describe her non-whiteness, despite she's you know there. And then uh, characters from both 1994 and 1666 are recast as roles in 1666. Oh, that's fun. That makes it also feel like a high school production. <laughs> no, that, that, no, no exactly, it, it, exactly. It absolutely does. It really does. And this is this is the strange thing about the whole movie. I mean, David kind of brought it up, which was successful kind of like colorblind casting just like cast the best people and they did and i think 1994 is is mostly successful for that but i think the more the movies go on and the more they talk about sunnyvale versus shady side um the more it just feels like uh the economic divide and it feels like a racial conversation as david said it's like these kind of like white people I don't know. It's strange to have colorblind casting in this way because it almost diminishes from the intensity of the divide between these people and the way that they're like almost mock white people in Sunnyside. I, I, I found it a little strange or like it couldn't totally make its point uh, at the end. And I, I, I don't know. Maybe that maybe I'm just like, uh, I don't know what I'm waiting for here. Or like if it, I mean, I must to go that deep, but it doesn't really land that aspect of it. I mean, I'm assuming that's that's if there's anything that's a way forward for more Fear Street, it is that that town thing is sort of not resolved. Like we found the evil, yeah. but in the process of the three movies, we were also taught the evil just gets taught and passed down and taught and passed down. Yeah. So you can kill the root, but the systems are all still there. I think there it does a, a good credit scene. Yeah, yeah, there is. I think there's a. I think there's a good um, shrug towards that if that's what they want to do. I just don't necessarily. I mean, maybe, maybe I want to see this exact same storyline with these char- characters, or maybe you just anthologize it and they can Fear make Street. a Fear Street TV series, right? They already yeah, did. They did. <laughs> yeah, it's Fear Street on Netflix. Oh, oh yeah, to do the one that just came out. Oh, well done. I saw that. Anyway, that's Fear Street. All three parts currently on Netflix. Check it out if it sounds. If you're one of the people we said would like it, um, I think I think it's interesting. I was gonna say if you watch it at a slumber party, let us know. But I don't know if I want to like. I don't know. Yeah, we're you know all the ten year old girls yeah. listen to fighting in the war room. <laughs> they yeah, they love in. it. It all began with a curse. That yeah. does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week, me included. I'm back. Uh, we're going to talk, talk about Green Knight, uh, which is out in theaters this week. And hopefully you get a chance to see it in theaters. The Green we'll Knight. Talk about it. It's oh, less me. clean. It's less clean. Uh, <laughs> this is the problem I have with the Underground Railroad as well. I never know if the V is supposed to be there or not. Uh, and it's also The Old, I believe. That's what yeah. that, that movie's called. Yes. The <laughs> Old, I believe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. We have a web fighting in the war room.com where you can listen to all the old episodes. Uh-huh. I mm. think you did there. Old. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I'm senior film critic for IndieWire. You can go on IndieWire and get a preview of my thoughts on The Green Knight if you're so inclined. You can also go on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room and leave us a review. We'll read it live on the show. Uh, live for us anyway uh, at <laughs> iTunes fighting in the war room that's what the cool kids are doing instead of memeing about the old beach and I'm Dave Gonzalez I spell my first name da 7 which is where you can find me on Twitter you can also find me on the storm a lost rewatch podcast and we are going to be finishing up lost by the end of August and then oh my god yeah but, but, but after been... that you have to go back right 
I mean, after that, we definitely have to go back to something else. But yeah, we're going to wrap up Lost. It's been a long couple of years. There was a whole pandemic in it. We went into quarantine with Desmond. Joanna started talking to Damon Lindelof a lot. It's been crazy. Check out our podcast, The Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast. Uh, and I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair and on the Little Gold Men podcast, where uh, this week we're talking about a bunch of these new movies, including Pig, which is a new new movie that I saw and didn't even talk about on the show, which tells you that seeing movies again. Blink, uh, baby. Yes. It's no first cow, but it is a pig. Um, I'm set in Oregon. Um, you can find me on Twitter at K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H and we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R where you can talk about your favorite movie animals or you can talk about this week's lightning round question which was In honor of Jungle Cruise what's your favorite cinematic boat? Thank you for listening we'll be back talking to you next week